Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. So we have a real joyous guest today, one of the most wonderful people I know, Susan McPherson. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. I could not pick a more exciting place to be on a Tuesday evening. You're so sweet. So as we all know, this past year has been a tumultuous year, but we've seen a great call for social justice and change. And with more and more people calling out corporations and brands to take part in creating a better world. And Susan is here to help those companies drawing on 25 plus years of experience in marketing, PR, and sustainability communications. She's the founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, an impact communications consultancy. She's an expert on corporate responsibility, working with major brands such as Salesforce, Dell, Tiffany & Company, JCPenney, and the list goes on. She's, as I know her, a serial connector, and she focuses herself on the intersection of brands and social impact, helping her clients with storytelling, partnership creation, and visibility. She's, of course, also a very sought-after writer and speaker with articles everywhere from Fast Company and Harvard Business Review and multiple keynote speaking engagements. And she's a board member of the 19th, the Lower East Side Girls Club, and USA for UNHCR, and is a Vital Voices Global Corporate Ambassador, as well as being an advisor to several nonprofits. And she just made her 18th investment in women-led startup companies. And Susan has given birth to a book called The Lost Art of Connecting, The Gather, Ask, Do Method for Building Meaningful Relationships. And that is coming out March 23rd. And I can't think of a better time and title than this. Oh my gosh, my heart is beating. Thank you ever so much for that beautiful introduction. Although hearing the quote unquote list of accomplishments, I think, oh my goodness, she's old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I don't think of it as old. I think of it as experience and there's no greater luxury than experience. That's true. And your bag of tricks gets better and bolder and more interesting. I often joke, what in hell did I talk about in my 20s? (laughs) Right? Totally. So- I think I want to 
just start with this idea of the lost art of connecting. First of all, just to give everyone some context. So Susan and I know each other. We're in the same women's group, women's networking group. And my impression of you since day one that I met you is you are truly the first person to say, how can I help you? How can I support you? When no one's asked you for anything, you are offering. And I want to understand, is that innate to you? Is that something that you have grown to do? Is that something that inspired this idea of like connections and connecting people? Like, Mm -hmm. give us some intel on that. Well, I wish I knew the perfect answer to that. Um, I grew up in a family where I had to fight for space at the breakfast table because my parents were clipping the five local newspapers. And there were back then there were local, you know, upstate New York, you had the Albany Times Union, blah, blah. And they would be cutting the papers and then putting articles in envelopes and dashing them off to friends, colleagues, relatives saying, thought of you, this made me think of you. So I assumed once I got, you know, into college and after that, that's what everybody's family did. And in my late 20s, the internet came into being and all of a sudden I found out it was so easy to continue to do that. And I think by nature of thinking of other people, clipping articles off, quote unquote, the early days of the internet and sending them via email was a way to help people out. Once I started working in corporate responsibility and social impact and getting involved in nonprofits, I found that the greatest currency we have in life is not our dollars. It's how we can be supportive and resourceful to others. And each of us has that secret sauce. I mean, we do not have to have a million dollars in our pocket or a thousand dollars in our pocket to offer up advice, to suggest the best restaurant that you know in a particular city, to introduce somebody to a member of the board at a school that you want one of your children to be accepted into, right? I mean, these are little things. So over the years, by doing that, the dopamine continued. It was like a drug, right? And I figure it's a healthy addiction. And then completely separate to that, you know how tiny I am, right? Yes. I'm, you know, five feet tall, or according to my license, I'm five feet tall. <laughs> and when I <laughs> when I walk into, you know, when I was in the business world starting in the early 90s, and I would walk into a boardroom or a corporate setting or a convention hall, no one would see me. And if I was lucky enough to engage in a conversation, the person was always looking over my head and looking at other people. But I learned very early on, and not in a manipulative way, but I learned very early on to actually ask a lot of questions and inquire about what was challenging that person at that time. And when you listen to people, everyone has challenges. And I mean, Lord knows this past year, multiply that by like 100%. But when you listen to people and you understand what's going on in their lives, it's really easy to offer up support. I'm not suggesting we go and completely you know, disregard our own selves and not take care of ourselves. I'm just saying, we all have the capacity to help each other and the world would be a better place if we indeed did. Yeah. And I think you raise a great point of just, it brings you joy to do it, right? So yeah, I mean, I completely relate to that because I also like to put myself out there as someone who's of service. And I think and it, you are and you do. Thank you. Thank you. I try. Okay. So, you know, Susan growing up, what was your plan as far as your career? Like, I'm sure you had no idea you were getting into corporate social responsibility because that was not a thing. No, no, no. (laughs) I often say if somebody even in my 20s had said at age 56, you were going to be running a company, you'd be single, childless and parentless. I would have been like, oh, take another drug, right? I mean, 
What I have learned in life is it is the detour, not the destination. And it's all those doors that one opens. If you have, you know, obviously not everyone has the luxury to have doors in front of them, but when you do open them, I mean, even though what's scary on the other side or what is on the other side may be scary, but as a child early on, I wanted to be what was then called a stewardess because I was very lucky. My father did a Fulbright in Romania in 1970. And we got to live in Bucharest and we traveled all over Europe. But I'll never forget looking at these stewardesses when I was a little five-year-old girl. And it seemed so glamorous, right? But then, of course, I found out, I think maybe when I was 12 or 13, that I would never be tall enough. Really? There was a height requirement? I mean, there was. And, of course, a weight requirement, too. I mean, you know, these things have changed, obviously, for all the reasons we know. But, yeah, there was a height requirement so you could reach up you know, to put bags above. Oh my God, that makes so much (laughs) sense, but I just have never thought about it. Yeah, yeah. So then I had a fleeting, I wanted to be an astronaut, but then after I got through with biology and chemistry and took physics, I realized, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. And then lastly, um, I studied history undergraduate, which means no jobs after college, (laughs) but I thought I would apply to the State Department, you know, and do the exam. But then, and I don't want to anger any of your audience members, but Reagan was president at the time, and I didn't want to work for the Reagan administration. It was not my cup of tea. So I ended up going to graduate school in broadcast journalism. I had always loved news. And my first real job out of graduate school was at USA Today, which at the time was the most broadcast-oriented print newspaper. And then, you know, things just like fell upon each other. But I always had one foot in philanthropy, like I would volunteer for nonprofits. Um, Inevitably, I ended up on on several nonprofit boards. So I became that go-to person at the company when the company wanted to fund a cause. It was like, oh, Susan will know. We'll ask her. So that helped me really start to understand how business could be a force for good in the world. Yeah, for sure. Hold on. I have to uncross my legs because they're numb. Hold on one second because I'm on the floor here. Because I'm so fancy on my podcast production. <laughs> so freaking fancy over here. Okay. So what did you actually do at PR Newswire? Well, here's the skinny. The only way you can stay at a company for 17 years is if you have 17 different jobs. I mean, I know. I, I did that Donna. <laughs> yeah, you did, right? So I started there in sales, actually, which I credit learning sales being a researcher at USA Today and waitressing in college were the three skills that enabled me to do anything. And then I managed the Northwest Bureau, meaning of PR Newswire. So I was in Seattle. I opened our offices in Beijing and Shanghai. I was tasked with helping get all, all in quotes, the technology companies in the 90s to switch from our only competitor at the time called Business Wire to PR Newswire. Oh my God. So by 1997, I already became a million mile flyer with United Airlines. So you sort of have that airline thing happening in another way, right? I mean, you did it. You were in the airline. So there you go. So I think your entrepreneurship story is really inspiring because it starts at 48. 48, yeah. So all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm going to start my own company or what happened? No, 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 no. It was a complete accident. And I often say I never would have named it McPherson Strategies because that is my ex-husband's name and we divorced in 2003. Now, I will caveat, he's a great guy. So, you know, no disrespect there, but it also is the ultimate in narcissism. Not again, you know, I don't want to, a lot of people name their companies after themselves, but that is so not who I am. 
No, it's not. But I was working at a boutique consulting firm and there were a lot of folks leaving. And in the consulting world, uh, for your listeners, when there's a, a dearth of talent or you know an exodus of talent, it means it's time to start looking. And I was terrified. And two organizations said, if you leave, we'll give you three or four months you know, engagements. So I left on a Friday and I started, quote unquote, my firm that next Monday because I was afraid they'd change their mind. Wow. I had never not had a paycheck since I was 15 and I was terrified. Yeah. And that was in 2013. And now almost eight years later, I just hired my 12th employee. Wow. Wait, hold on. Now I have to reposition myself again because I'm old <laughs> and uncomfortable. And Elise, by the way, I want you to keep this all in. So I think a lot of people can relate to this in a different way. I mean, obviously you made this choice, right? But for people who have been laid off and are thinking like, okay, there's not a job prospect right now, they may have to start building out yeah. some sort of consulting freelance business. So what are some of the first steps you took? Like, obviously you had a client, which is huge. Yeah. But then, I mean, you had a three-month gig with them or a four-month gig. Three. So then how do you plan out? And I remember I asked you this, like when I was starting my consulting thing, like how do you like future plan like when those holes open up? Sure. Like that's the scary part. Well, and not to be self-promotional, but this is where my book comes in because I look back now over the last eight years, 98% of our business has been inbound. And that is because of 30 years of taking those meetings, connecting people, making shit happen. And I didn't do it with the notion of, oh, in 30 years, I'm going to launch a company and I'm going to come back and call you. And you're going to remember that I did you that favor. None of that was on the table. So to me, if anyone finds themselves in this situation, and you know, I would say there's a good chance all of us could go through this in our lifetimes. It's another reason why making and building your connections and not quote unquote networking, but actually building meaningful connections will help you in this kind of situation. Because actually the second thing I did after filing for the LLC was I sent an email to everybody I've ever met, you know, or at least that was in my database and still alive. And I said, by the way, I'm launching this, not sure, you know, what eventually it will be, but if you hear of anyone looking for X, Y, Z. And honestly, that's what did it. But I think had I done it at age 30, I probably wouldn't have been successful because I wouldn't have had that network from which to, you know, reach out to, um, or even 40. But, you know, 48 is not, not a spring chicken. <laughs> Talk to us about the difference between networking and meaningful connections. Um, I think probably one very easy way to think of networking is counting the number of followers you have on social platforms, okay? Where it's very transactional, where you don't actually know the people and you don't engage with them. Now, I'm not suggesting you get on Twitter and start engaging with every one of your followers, but that's the mindset. It's literally going and grabbing business cards and then typing them into your um, whatever system you use on your laptop um, and then forgetting about them. It's really being vulnerable yourself being open yourself, and then engaging with others. I mean, to me, that's the difference. Yes, they they obviously, there's synergy. You go to events just like you would with networking. But I do believe the difference is, is it's not about walking into a room and meeting as many people as you can, but rather walking into a room, meeting a few people and finding out how can you help them? Not how can they help you or what can you get? Because inevitably, when you help others, it almost always comes back. What do you mean by the vulnerable part, though? 
explain that a little bit? Well, I think for people to feel that they can open up to you, you have to be ready to open up to them. Okay. There was a time 15, 20 years ago where we really had a work self and a home self. And I truly believe that once we had email and then once we had, you know, a device that you could carry with you everywhere, the line was divided. Mm-hmm. Yes, you could maintain somewhat of a different person, but I'm sitting here in my living room doing this interview, right? I mean, you know, the, fast forward to 2020, that changed everything. It also made it acceptable to talk about our challenges. So when I talk to you about challenges that I'm having, you become much more likely to feel comfortable talking about yours. And it sets the bar that, you know, we're all humans, right? I'll never forget my mother used to say, even Queen Elizabeth farts. (laughs) It's true. You know, because you, and her notion was, you know what, regardless of how wealthy someone is, I mean, we're all going to live and we're all going to die, right? I mean, to me, when we think of networking, we think of being buttoned up and all about going out and going for it. And that isn't what I'm describing. And I hope it's clear what I'm... Yeah, it's totally clear. So going back to like the forward thinking aspect of when you're getting to the end of a term with like a client, if like everything is inbound, which I know it is for you, like you just fill your schedule and that's, it just works out. What happens is, I mean, today's an example. Um, a dear friend of about a week ago introduced me to a company that is really needing to tell their social impact story. So today I had a new business call with them and with a member of the team. Um, again, it came through a friend who passed it on and then we're going to do a proposal. So I, I you know, I want to make it clear. It's not like 98% walked in and they were like, here's money. You know, it's not, <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't quite like that. I mean, you know, we definitely still had to do a song and dance. Yeah. But I think the point is, is when you have a relationship to begin with, that trust is already there. So the song and dance doesn't have to be quite as much of a tango, right? It can just be a soft shoe or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a dancer. I'm not a dancer either. So how did you become an expert on this subject? That's a really good question. It's funny. I have a hard time calling myself an expert in anything. I tend to think of myself as a a jack of all trades and master of none. But back in uh, 2007, I was at a retreat with eight amazing women and we went up to the Catskills and our goal of that weekend trip, we were not going to leave our lovely little cottage that we rented until we came up with our elevator speech. And I was at PR Newswire towards the tail end after, you know, 17 years. And I was like, my God, what am I going to do? Da, 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 da. And, you know, we, we, we talked all weekend about our passions, what we feel we're good at. And I'm like, I'm a connector. I'm a connector. So that is when I birthed my tagline that said, Susan McPherson is a serial connector. And we all had these kind of very like, you know, what is it? Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You put it out there. But I remember reading it out loud and like when at the end of the weekend and I like laughed my ass off because I thought to myself, I sound like such an ass. Like, just, like who's going to believe that? Fast forward a few years later when I was walking onto a stage to give a talk and they introduced me, Susan McPherson, a serial connector. I, I was like, I almost started laughing. Like, I was like, but it's true. Like, that is what I had been doing. I just had never put the nomenclature around it. And I realized like every bit of like joy that I've had, well, I shouldn't say that I've had joy in other ways, which I won't go into, but 
you know, was really bringing people together and then seeing the magic that happens because of that. And maybe, maybe I'm an anomaly, but I think a lot of people get joy out of bringing people together. Totally. But I guess my clarifying question is bringing people together as like friends, I get, but if you're like putting like essentially deals together, like if you're Mm -hmm. partnering companies and you're putting deals together, is there not a financial aspect to that that you should benefit from? There could be, but my company has eight years of profitability. Well, I don't know if we've profitable the entire time, but there's the proof in the pudding, right? Right, 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 right. The fact that I have you know, been able to raise money for the, the nonprofit boards I serve on is proof in the pudding, right? There's a chapter in my book talks about, you know, this isn't about giving away free services, right? And obviously, it, it's also not about being taken advantage of yeah. and not putting your worth around introducing it, that that is not this is this is more to just instead of when you walk in a room and being like terrified realizing that each of us has magic secret wonderful things that we can offer up and when we are empowered with that and we walk into that room we feel far less intimidated but the thing is is if you build a deep relationship with somebody and then you help them get a deal you have the ability to say I just did this. I would like 10% for that. But when you, when you don't have a meaningful relationship with that person, that becomes so much more uncomfortable to have that conversation. No, it's totally true. And I think this book really details the tactics because people struggle with understanding where to draw the line. Like sometimes, you know, like I consider myself a connector and I am the first person to actually make those introductions like the second that I say that I'm going to like there's an email that follows like a lot of people say that they're going to do that and then they don't do that but I also do keep track of like if there's like repeat offenders who just keep on coming back and and then it's like "Mm, I'm you know like done helping you actually because now I kind of feel like you're using me you know what and you are entitled to do that that is completely acceptable and normal and you know what there's a zillion other people that won't do that right? Yeah, total. So with regard to corporate social responsibility, yeah. and I can't think of a more important mission for companies in today's age, what are your dream clients? Like, how do you advise them? Like, what are some tips that companies should be doing right now? And why do they need Susan McPherson? Like, how yeah. do you help them shape this? Because sure. I feel like a lot of companies do things, but they certainly don't know how to tell anyone that they're doing them. Well, and, you know, having been in this space for as long as I have, I've seen a real you know, transition along the years. What used to be kind of a nice to have um, if you were a major multinational company, and it was very steeped in philanthropy and, you know, very much writing checks, if you could, for the good reputational boost to today, where it is so baked into the business that it's the only way you're going to be able to attract good employees. It is absolutely tantamount to getting institutional funding from mutual funds, you know, that invest in the longevity of your company and, you know, pension funds, um, the Black Rocks of the world, right? And then also even B2B. Like, you know, if you're a PwC or an Accenture, inevitably, when you are vying for business, there are RFPs. And at the bottom of the RFP, it's going to say, what are you doing? For the environment, how are you limiting your carbon footprint? So these things aren't, you know, nice to haves or kind of like frosting on the cake. They have to be. And you know what? The world is going to benefit for that. And the latest Edelman um, barometer came out and showed 
there is more trust in business and business leaders than there is in any other entity that we know, religious institutions, government, local and, and regional and national. So my firm's role is the communication of that impact. And I often equate it to if you're you know, not in the woods when the tree falls, you're not going to hear it. Well, if a company is truly doing the good work and not just talking about having a racial reckoning or you know, stepping up to reduce its packaging, but if it actually is and it's not telling that story, then it is missing huge opportunities. Study after study shows the bottom line will benefit when companies make these investments. My contention is if you're going to go and make these investments, at least let your important audiences know. Your employees, number one, they need to know before anybody because they're your best asset, your boards, your customers, and then the communities in which you operate. It's so simple, yet it was so not always there. It's interesting. Oh, no, of course. I mean, it was a purview of the white CEO who was inevitably, you know, middle-aged, writing a check to have his name on a hospital or a museum. That's what it used to be. For our younger listeners who might want to pursue a career in this area, what would you say is the best place to start? Well, if they can, from a financial standpoint, getting fellowships and internships to have practical, real experiences is unbelievably beneficial. That's number one. And the beautiful thing also is what used to be very much siloed in a company, like there was like one or two people, depending on the size of the company, that looked after corporate responsibility. It is now, I I liken it to like an octopus where there's portions of it in all parts of the business. Uh, And again, it depends, of course, on the size of the company, but you'll have somebody in marketing that is helping the marketing department do social impact branding. You'll have somebody in communications that might be looking after mission-driven communications. You'll have an HR, somebody who is really focusing on what the company's doing from a human, you know, supply chain and humanitarian. So there's lots of different ways. So I think in some ways there's huge opportunities. I also would say don't discount the nonprofit sector because if you are working in the nonprofit sector, you know, or for-profit companies could bring you on for the skills and understanding that you have gained in that particular area the nonprofit focuses on. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's also your history. Yeah. Right? I mean, because that was your knowledge base as sort of being the resident nonprofit expert. Exactly. Exactly. With your investing. Yes. So I think it's incredible how many companies you've invested in. How do you navigate that? How do you choose where to put your money? (laughs) This is where your reader or your readers, your listeners should not listen to me. (laughs) It is completely out of altruism. I fall in love with the founder and I want the founder to succeed. And, you know, I will tell you just a a quick side note. um, And I think you know this story. My mother was killed in a horrible tragedy when I was 22. Yes. And there was um, over a 10 year period, a class action lawsuit that gave my father, my father, when he retired as a professor after almost 40 years was making like $40,000. I mean, we didn't grow up with any kind of, we had one bathroom for five people. A 1200 square foot house. I mean, you know, we definitely weren't wanting, but I mean, nothing spectacular. And I never had kids. So a little bit of that money that I inherited, you know, which would have gone to my kids education or, you know, I mean, the cost of having children is enormous. So because of my mother's death, I have used that money to invest in women led startups. Oh, that's such a nice legacy, though. Well, she went back to work when I was the youngest of three. And she went back to work when I was 
in first or second grade. And it was really hard. And it wasn't until I was 18 and, you know, close to when she was killed that I finally realized, like, what she was doing in the 70s was unheard of. And it's the women of her generation that has helped so many women paying it forward. So to me, I think subconsciously, it's it's my way of honoring her. Oh, that's so nice. Do you have like a life mantra? Oh, my God. I wish I did. Help me with that. <laughs> I don't have one. I, I mean, I no. really don't. Other than, you know, I believe all change is good change. That's yeah. one of mine. I mean, you know, a few things have carried me through the tough times. And, you know, I've had a lot of loss. My late papa always said nothing is a prison sentence, which has enabled me to take enormous risks and carry on because I would know if I made a decision, I could always go backtrack on that decision. And something, you know, my mom always said was, and please don't take this the wrong way. When I was in high school, she couldn't understand when girls, my friends would go steady with guys because in in (laughs) her, in the forties, when she was in high school, you would date many, right? And her contention was you meet boys to meet their friends. So when I've taken that to my life, it's like you meet people because every person you meet is a conduit to something else. And you learn not only about that person and the breadcrumbs of that person's DNA and and what that person's life has been like, but you learn something about yourself. And so I guess, I, I don't know if those are mantras, but those are things that feed my soul. They definitely are life lessons. Mm-hmm. So People who read your book, what areas do you think they're going to walk away being so much smarter? Well, I think leading with how can I help? Um, I think that that is going to be hugely, hugely important. It is very prescriptive. There's even, you know, a chapter of, you know, the 10 questions you can ask when you're standing at a conference and you're terrified. That's a good one. Yeah. That is a really good one. Because I think, you know, long before COVID, we have been struggling I think the power of connectivity and what it can mean for you over the long haul, I think that that's really important. And the book features um, interviews with about 30 or so leaders who actually have made connection. It's not just from my perspective. Yeah. So, you know, you'll hear from Allie Gales how Renaissance Weekends were put together. And when I first told her about this book, her commentary to me was, that's Renaissance Weekend. That's, you know, and it's this joy, you know, I coined a term in the in the book called JOMO as a take on FOMO. And that is, it's the joy of meeting others. Ooh. It's not the joy of missing out, right? I like it. Yeah, because I like it. FOMO, you know, FOMO existed 20 years ago. It's just obviously now it's it's always in our face, right? Because we're seeing all the parties we didn't get invited to. So I talk a good deal about taking it over and instead become the actual convener. And you know, I mean, for a bazillion years, I host constantly. All the time. That's because of fear of missing out, right? I mean, but it is not the joy of missing out. It is the joy of meeting others. And there's nothing to me more just magnificent than getting to know people and what makes them tick and what is their favorite food and where was the last great place they traveled. That is my energy. You're such a good person, Susan. (laughs) What are common mistakes people make in networking or trying to build relationships professionally? I think by having assumptions, you know, assuming that because somebody is a garage mechanic or a waitress, you know, or a delivery person, that that person couldn't have some amazing ability to do something that could be helpful to you. Okay. I think that that's really important. I think the fear, just the fear, the fear of meeting others. 
And many, many people have that. And I'm sure there's a thousand reasons why, but somehow I think when you realize that when you open that door, as scary as it may be, there could be like Hawaii on the other side, right? Like, you know, like there could be just a million dollars just sitting there, right? And so to me, like we let our fears take over the potential that could be. Um, but I do think it's it's really not being judgmental. I think it's pushing ourselves to get out of our silos, to meet people who aren't like us, which is not easy. Uh, I mean, and the country is reeling, obviously, from the fact that most of us don't push to get out. But again, I, I want to preface it. I'm not saying these things are easy. But yeah, the magic that will ensue when you do open yourself up to meeting people not like yourselves, you will find. So what's the tactic to do that like right now, do you think? Well, it really depends, obviously, on your situation. And I know that many, many people don't have the quote unquote luxury to work from home. Right. So I, I certainly don't want to pretend that this is all things for all people. But, you know, we are on for many of us, um, we are on so many Zoom calls over and over and over again. And we tend to just go in and then let it go. To me, this is an opportunity to reach out to people that you work with, back channel, you know, use the chat session in Zoom and literally reach out and just say, how are you? How are you doing? Um, or we've never met, but you know what? Let's meet up in Slack and have a conversation. And I re again, you don't have to do these all the time with all the people, but you will see you will reap the benefits if you do that. Um, there's a new app that my team started using called Donut on Slack. Yes. And every week you have like a fun chat. Um, the other thing, you know, I, I had suggested recently was, you know, set up walk and talks. You can do those with your phones. You, you know, it doesn't have to be just sitting in front of your computer. And one of the things I have done throughout this pandemic, but also for the last 20 years, using various technology, you know, whatever means, I still use the old phone and I'll just pick somebody out of my telephone book. I still call it my telephone book or my Rolodex. And I'll just ping them and be like, you popped in my mind. I just wanted to say hello with no yeah. expectation of anything in return other than that joy that I get by touching them. I do the same thing. Yeah. And it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. And it's also better than like, you know, email. I feel like sometimes you have to have like a reason or it seems like work esque, right? It's yeah. like emails like work related, but a quick text or popping into DMs and just saying like, just thought of you. I mean, I guess it could sound, you know, fake, but it's true. Like sometimes someone random pops in your head. You're like, okay, I haven't spoken to a person in 4 million years. And you're always going to have that person who's going to say, oh, she's fake. And you know what? Right. I mean, it's taken me to 56 to like brush those off. Okay. I mean, yeah. because, you know, in high school, girls would say behind my back that, oh, she's so nice. She has to be fake. <laughs> and, and I'm like, all right. And, you know, when I graduated high school, I was like, oh, good. The mean girls are gone. <laughs> you know what? They, they never went away. But the thing is, is, you know, the, for the 95% of people who would be really touched by somebody doing that, that's who needs to matter. Let's talk about your amazing hosting skills. So dream COVID dinner party. Who's at that table? Oh, my goodness. That's hard. Well, I would say my dear friend, Lisa Witter, who lives in Berlin, I'd give her a one-way ticket. <laughs> um, I would say Ruth Ann Harnish, who's a dear oh. friend who you know. Of course, you. <laughs> you don't have to invite me. Yeah. That's my idea. <laughs> uh, my wonderful friend, Adora Udoji. I mean, clients. I'd invite my mom. 
Um, and probably my dad, you know, have them both come. That would be fun. I'd love to tell them where I am now. I mean, just the fact that I have a book coming out, you know, that would yeah. be so exciting. They see you. They see uh, you. Um, notice I didn't say any men. I, I like don't know men. Like, I don't know what happened, but in all my connecting somehow that like they went extinct. Oh. So, <laughs> well, they're still out there. If you want to pick up that little to-do list, they're definitely still out there. So this book, I mean, Labor of Love yeah. comes out yeah. March 23rd, and I think it's going to serve so many people so well, because for so many people, and, and this is not our age necessarily, but younger, the only type of connecting they know yeah. is the like button yeah. or a text message. And I think it really needs to be communicated in a way that like, I mean, I love how you call it the lost art, because mm -hmm. if this is not protected in some way, yeah. there's no way for them to know any different. And I think it's really important. So kudos to you for putting it on paper. Thank you. I burst into tears a week ago because I, you know, it dawned on me. It, there's something very bittersweet about launching a book about connection during a time where we really only have our technology tools. But thank God we do. Right. Yeah, seriously. But my sister so gracefully said, she said, Susan, if anything, this is the most important time to put this out there. And I, I have to say, I think if anything, I mean, we, we've all learned so much over the last year, but I have to say one of the, the top kind of ahas was nothing matters more than our relationships, right? Sure. With sure. family, with friends, with colleagues, and the amount of time that we have had to go without the hugs, without actually physically being able to see each other or plan to see each other. It makes us realize all the more reason how important it is. Yeah, it's true. It's been extremely challenging. I mean, certainly more so for some people than others. And yeah, I think, of course, I think though that you should take solace in the fact of launching a book during COVID on zoom is actually going to save you a lot of time doing public events where you think a hundred people have RSVP'd yes and like 10 show up because I can relate to that because I didn't do a book in COVID. And this way you can just get the book more out there to more people and you don't have to waste time going places. It's perfect. <laughs> Although you know how much I love to travel. I know. I know you do. I still think about your pictures from Antarctica. They're so my God. crazy, amazing. And the Finnish Arctic uh, four years ago. And my God. But you are so right. And I'm excited and I'm blessed and I feel grateful. So yeah, silver lining, right? Absolutely. So what's next on your bucket list? Because I have to tell you, once the book is out in the world, it's like over. You need a new project. I know. I know. Can I come back to you on that? <laughs> yes, you totally can. I'm open for suggestions. Um, I will be continuing to grow my business, but also, you know, my team recently asked me, like, what is the North Star for the business? And and I just, you know, I want to make it not only a tremendous company for clients to want to hire us, but I want to make it such a wonderful, magical place for the employees that work there so that they continue to grow and nurture each other. Well, I have no doubt with you as their boss, that's already happening. So that's for sure. Thank you. How can I help you? No, I, I'm not done with my interview. Thank you, Susan. 
<laughs> How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? How do people remember Susan McPherson? She got shit done. Oh, you do get shit done. Um, you're going to do more than that, though. I mean, you're certainly going to do more. She got that. lots of shit done. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, no, you're so sweet. You're helping me by coming on my podcast and being a great guest. Thank you. Well, this was by far the highlight of January and February. I guess we're in February now. So. We are in February now. Oh, my God. Susan, I adore you. Your book is going to be a Thank huge you. success. I'm so excited for you. And just keep doing what you're doing. And more importantly, just keep teaching others how to do what you do because you do make an impact with everyone you meet. You are such a doll. Love you, my friend. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this. If change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.